Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 19 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're honored to learn from Dr. Alistair McGrath about the life and faith of Dr. J.I. Packer. Dr. Packer died last July at the age of 93 and is considered to be one of the most influential Christian academics and theologians in North America. Dr. McGrath has written two biographies on the life of J.I. Packer, and his latest book provides a fascinating look into what led J.I. Packer into academia, church ministry, and the theology that made a huge impact on churches around the world. Dr. McGrath is a theologian, scientist, historian, scholar, and professor of science and religion at Oxford University. In this conversation, Dr. McGrath discusses why he decided to write a book on Packer's life. He discusses Packer's thoughtful decision to teach at Regent College, why his book, Knowing God, became a bestseller, why Packer loved reading the Puritan writers, his thoughts on theistic evolution, why he didn't like using the word inerrancy to describe the Bible's trustworthiness, as well as his thoughts on aging, going blind, and what it means to grow old with God. Here's our conversation. So Dr. McGrath, um, thank you so much for reading on the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. So I was listening to a session with J.I. Packer, and he was talking about the first time that he met you. Um, and he mentioned that shortly after meeting you, he met you on a train ride, which you talk about in the biography. And uh, he said, like, after the train ride, which was about two or three hours, you said that you wanted to write his life. And so I was very, very curious about, like, that particular train ride when you got on the train you saw jay packer were you like assigned to sit next to him or you just like went over to sit next to him we had been at a meeting together in london um briefly the previous day and then we we were both going from oxford to cambridge and um we got on the same it was actually a coach and uh, we recognized each other from the meeting so we went across said hi and we sat down beside each other and it was a very long journey we had a wonderful conversation um i began to realize this guy's really interesting you know i'd read some of his books but as a person he was really interesting he told me all about some of the things he'd been doing and i thought we need to get this written down it's so interesting so I thought, look, uh, I'd like to write this guy's biography, and Jim very kindly agreed. So it was, it was a fascinating conversation. Because that's a, a tremendous amount of work to like do a biography. And so did you realize like what you were signing up for when you mentioned that to him? I did. I, I knew what I wanted to do, and it involved uh, reading everything he'd written. That took a long time. It also involved writing lots of people, letters to people who knew him, and saying, look, can you help me remember anything? Is it, how did Packer influence you, and things like that. I think I wrote 300 letters, something like that. This is before wow. emails. That's a long wow. time ago. And, um, you know, and they were really interesting. So it gave me a very good sense of just how interesting this man was. I'm very curious about, because when you get on the train ride with him, you've already read some of his writings. You obviously uh, know him from the conference and from previous engagements. What was it about that conversation? Because that conversation was critical. Um, that train ride was critical to the development of the two biographies you've written. What were some things that stood out to you as you chatted with him where you were like, I need to invest part of my life into telling his story? I knew that Jim Packer was a very significant writer, and I'd read, I think, many of his books by them. But that doesn't help you get to know the person behind the books. And as I talked to him about how he became a theologian, 
the um, impact it made on his life, I began to realize that actually, although some of that comes out in his books, not all of it did. I began to realize that actually I would get a lot more out of reading him, as would so many other people, if they knew how J.I. Packer came to be J.I. Packer, and what motivated him to read, to write these books, what his background was. And I felt that actually I owed it to him, because he's such an interesting person, to, to enable his readers to find out these added depths to him, so they get more out of reading his books. And that actually was really my motivation for writing that biography, to enable people to understand him better, and hence get more out of reading him. So what was like your your next step. So you have that chat with him. You're obviously uh, fascinated by him, both his academic life, his spiritual life, and then him as a person. And then you mentioned all the letter writing. This is before email. So you, you, did you just ask him, like, who are some people I can chat with to kind of get some backstory on your life? Well, he did mention some people he thought I should get in touch with. But because I had I was based in the United Kingdom. I had lots of friends and theological education. I was able to work out pretty quickly um, who some of these people were and who some people were who could put me in touch with people who um, Jim would have worked with at various stages in his life. So some of them, those were, you knew Jim Packer very well at this stage. Tell me something about what he did and so on. Some of those were, look, um, you know Jim well and I want you to help me track some other people who might know him, particularly at this period, so we can really make sure we do that side of his life justice. So in effect, the biography is based on a very extensive correspondence. I tracked down people who remembered Jim from the various stages of his life, and I wove their insights into the biography. Fantastic. And it's amazing that you're doing this during a time before we had internet. Is that right? Like this is before email. It was just email. coming in. It was just coming in, but we weren't there yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, nowadays it's so much easier. But in those days, you know, it was basically typing letters. <laughs> <laughs> what was like uh, your response rate as you began sending off letters? Like, if you send off ten letters, how many responses would you get? I would get about seven or eight. But what's good is that some of those seven or eight would say, I can help. And actually, have you have you thought of contacting so-and-so? Because he would be very helpful. She'd be very good. And so very often I, I got a cascade effect whereby one person would say, you need to get in touch with these people as well. Here are the details. Tell them I suggested you do this. So in effect, I got entrees into these people through my correspondence. Did you already have like, like a map, like certain themes that you wanted to cover, or did the themes kind of emerge through these uh, letters back and forth? I had a chronological map. Uh, I was able to say, look, here's Jim's life, and here are the various institutions he taught at, here are the various books he wrote. So I had a pretty good sense of what happened. What I didn't know is the details of the environments he lived in, the influence he had on people there, how people who worked with him felt about him. So I felt, you know, I need to flesh out because Jim's not just a thinker, he's a human being. I want to try and bring out the man, not just the writer. And that was very, very interesting because clearly Jim had a big impact on those who knew him. I noticed that your your biography uh, touches very much. I mean, it goes into detail about his his academic career, how he thought about these transitions um, to where he would go and teach, churches he would go at. 
I mean, you provide so much detail, which I thought was very, very fascinating, which definitely helps get to know him personally and how thoughtful he was in his own career navigation. One of the areas that was interesting was that um, we didn't get too much in, you didn't get too much into his personal life with his wife. You mentioned him getting married and we know that he had children. Um, And I know that wasn't really the concern of this particular book, but do you have any insight into kind of his relationship with his wife and his kids? I decided deliberately as a matter of policy that I was writing about Packer the writer. And therefore, I felt I had to protect the privacy of his family. In effect, um, that was an area which I'm sure some would find interesting. But I felt that it wasn't really something I ought to go into. I felt it would be intrusive. For example, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Jim and Kit did not have children. They adopted children. And clearly, there's a story behind that. And I felt... While that might be very interesting, I just felt that that I shouldn't go there. That wasn't fair. There was absolutely nothing to worry about. But I just felt in many ways I'm telling the story of this man who um, wrote these books. And certainly I do tell the story of how Jim and Kit met. That's very interesting. Uh, And there are various points at which Kit plays a very important role in Jim's life. For example, the decision to go to Vancouver. Jim would not go to Vancouver unless he felt his family would be happy there. It was a very big issue for him. So so I decided that that really, while that is a very important story, I shouldn't tell it. I wasn't the right person to do it. Yeah, and that, that story that you mentioned about going to Vancouver and serving at Regent College was actually very fascinating to me as you wrote about his thought process and how thoughtful he was. Because Packer could have been anywhere. He could have, he was being invited to go to various schools and he was so thoughtful around where he's going to be spending his academic career, where he's going to be teaching. And then what I thought also interesting that you pointed out was that not only did he want to make sure his family situation was going to be happy, that everyone felt like, yeah, this was going to be a good move. That was super important to him, which is very like a beautiful thing that Packer was like, I want to make sure my family is going to be happy wherever we move. So that was a huge consideration. And the other one that you mentioned in your book is that he was hesitant also about the church situation, that he was very much wanted to make sure there was an Anglican parish that he can go to. And you mentioned St. John's. Hmm. But I thought it was very interesting that, um, because sometimes you think about like when you're taking a job, you're thinking about, well, there's the prestige of going to a certain university, uh, being in a certain place. Um, but for him, it was also about spiritual life and where was he going to be nurtured spiritually? Can you talk a little bit about his, um, his move to Vancouver and you just mentioned his family situation, but also like the spiritual situation of him for him? Yes, it's a very good question. Let's talk about that. I mean, I mean, I was in a very fortunate position as a biographer. First of all, I was based in Oxford, so I knew an awful lot of people. And then around this time, I began to build links with Regent College Vancouver. So I got to know the people there. One of the people I got to know was James Houston, who used to be at Oxford and then went to be the, in effect, founding principal of Regent College Vancouver. And, um, you know, I was able to have those conversations with people to really help me see what the bigger picture was. And Jim was very unhappy about one aspect of theological education in Britain, which was it tended to be a principal and then underdogs, you know, members of staff who did the teaching. 
And Jim felt very strong. There had to be a more collegial atmosphere there, rather like in American faculties. And so he, he was looking for somewhere where they'd have this more open faculty type structure. But he preferred Canada to um, the United States, because if you like, it's midway between British culture and American culture. He felt that actually that would work. And here's what you need to know. Um, you're right about Jim and church life. Jim wanted to be not an academic theologian, but somebody who interfaced with the church. Therefore, there had to be a congregation in which he could minister and do useful things. So that's a very important thing. But the other thing which is really significant was he wanted to work for somebody he could trust, somebody who, who in effect he felt was a known person. And Packer and James Houston knew each other. They went back to the 1940s. Would you believe it? Wow. That, it's that, that's it. I mean, he, the, they really were very old friends. In fact, Jim Houston gave the eulogy at um, Jim's funeral service in Vancouver, as I'm sure you know. That The friendship was that um, that old, and in his eulogy address, James Houston described Packer as his oldest friend, and he mm. was. So, see, when, when um, James Houston said to Packer, look, will you think of coming to Regent College Vancouver? Well, they knew each other. They knew they could work together. The issue was, would he like Regent College? And so, of course, he had to go and find out. But basically, this is all about a call. It's not a career move. It's, would is this what I think fits in with my vision of what God is calling me to do? Which is A, about teaching, it's about writing books, and it's about ministering to congregations. And he wanted all three, and he got them yeah. there. Which is why in the more recent book, I, I describe his period at Vancouver as being golden years, because actually it was a very happy time. He was very settled, very productive. It was a very important period of his life. Yeah, and, and what a decision. Um... And you, you write about that that complicated decision because he did go back and forth. Um, so I didn't know, like, interesting about that friendship was so long that that obviously was very uh, influential in helping him. Like, like you said, the trust factor. Is this a place where I'll enjoy being? And, and him getting that feedback from a friend, like saying, I think you're going to like it here and here's why. And so I think that's very, very, um, very pivotal. And also, like, um, was it Regent College at the time fairly new? I think you wrote about Pinnock was there. Um, so it was a fairly kind of a new institution at that it time? It was a new institution. And also, um, I mean, most people nowadays know about Regent College. In those days, they did not. You know, uh, it, one of the things Jim Packer did was to make it famous because, you know, he was a very big fish uh, in at Regent College. But he was not interested in going to a prestigious institution. He wanted to go somewhere where he felt he could do what needed to be done. And, you know, if, if you're an author and a, and a speaker, well, you know, you, you can kind of use a place as a base from which to go and teach elsewhere. But I think Jim felt that there was a church link that was good. He'd be able to write, he'd be able to speak. But he also felt that under James Houston, Regent College would go somewhere. And he was very happy to be part of that process of growth and rise to fame. And actually, I, I mean, there are many very good people at Regent, but Jim, I think, did play a particularly important role in putting it on the map. Yeah, no doubt. And it's interesting, like, that 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 choice, because you think about, like, somebody in Packer's position really could go anywhere. He could definitely be speaking at and, and having a nice position at a prestigious university like in Oxford, like very easily. 
and making a decision to go to a kind of a newer school and like be part of that process. That was so important to Packer, like to be part of this very important process of setting up a proper mm -hmm. school. Um, it speaks a lot to his character because he, like, he obviously could have been to like, he could have been in Oxford and teaching there and been very, very happy. Um, but he was very much a lot. He wanted to do something and, and to help shape a school like Regent. I think it's a very good exercise in discerning vocation. Where am I meant to be? And one obvious answer is to go somewhere famous, because that's great. I think Jim was thinking more in terms of where will I be most useful? Where can I do the things that I now believe God is asking me to do? And if we look at Jim's career, for example, he didn't want to be a theological educationist. Then through a year he spent doing something at a place in North London, he discovered he could teach and began to realize maybe I could do that. And it, throughout his life, we see maybe I could do that. This needs to be done. Maybe I could do it. It's all about, if you like, not a master plan from day one, but rather an emerging vision of who he was, what his gifts were, and how he could use these. And as I look at his trajectory, you know, it makes perfect sense he ended up at Regent College in Vancouver, and that was right. But, you know, nobody could have predicted that, because this is all about emerging. Vocation is not so a, a single flash of insight you see exactly mm -hmm. what your path looks like if you like it's this stage this step this step you know it's gradual and, if, and that's what i find so fascinating about jim's career the way in which at each stage he's saying i think i'm being asked to do this you know and testing see if it's right and he stayed for a long time in vancouver because he felt this is where i'm meant to be yeah i love how you talk about him loving to teach and i'm kind of curious like what was he like as a teacher if you sat in a room with him with his students what was like his personality like what type of style did he have as a teacher some would call it a little bit dry and um, i would call it steady methodical comprehensive this was somebody who knew what he was talking about and felt it very important to communicate it faithfully and effectively and he wasn't um, the kind of uh, teacher who um, used kind of, um, you know, uh, rhetorical gimmicks or anything like that. He was steady. He was patient. But actually, I think that was what people really valued about him. They knew this was strong meat and they were getting it from somebody who was teaching it to them patiently. And they were more than willing to listen to him and, and, and kind of way... Um, absorb this wisdom he was dispensing i was reading a blog recently about him at saint john's and the way that he would um so he this is you explained like the way he is in a classroom being very methodical being very very thoughtful just like he is when you read his books um very intentional about every word that he's using and i was also curious about like his like devotional style like how he was like in a church setting and i was reading a blog article about him like teaching these um these small little devotional classes at a church with like 20, 30 people. And I think, wow, like Hacker was never like above anybody. Like it didn't matter if it was 15 people in a room, two people in a room, he would just, he would do that class. And that's just the type of person that he was. 
That's absolutely right. And indeed, one of my correspondents who knew him very, very well, talking about his period in Bristol in England, he said, um, you know, Jim, he would go and talk to a man and his dog if he thought it was worthwhile, you know, because in effect, you know, that was his job. He was a communicator, therefore he needed to go and talk to people. And so you do find Jim um, doing things which might seem very lowly, very menial, but he saw them as being important. This was his role to serve. You know, he could speak to, you know, thousands through his writings, but actually he would go to small church groups because he felt these were important. Knowing God put him on the map for a lot of people. That book sold millions of copies and the way that he expressed theology and spirituality together. And it, it's very hard for like a theological book to become a bestseller where everyone's like, I want that book. And it's like a book of theology, but he very much was connecting uh, not just knowing about God, but knowing God, like in a relational aspect. As you like look at knowing God and the impact it's had on the on, on on our churches, what is it that you think just really resonated with people and why it became a bestseller? I think it's his legacy book. It's, it's a book for which he's going to be remembered, and rightly so. I think that um, as I talk to people about why they found it so so compelling, what I found is people very often would begin by saying, I, I, I'd I, read or I'd heard a lot of very dry academic theological stuff and it wasn't connecting with me at all. And I was just saying, you know, I, I, was, I was getting all this emotional stuff from the pulpit and actually it, it wasn't, it wasn't really connecting with my mind. And what they found in knowing God was something which was theologically rigorous, but it was all about a relational understanding of theology. This is about deepening the quality of a Christian life. It's about not just knowing about theological doctrines, it's about knowing God better. And it's not a purely emotive or um, experiential thing. I mean, those ideas are there, but they are framed within this idea of to know God is to relate to God, is to experience God. It's all part of the same thing. And you can't take it to bits and say, I'll have that and not that. So if you'd like, it's a holistic view of the Christian faith, which stresses the importance of getting your theology right, but also what happens if you do get it right, which is this right relationship with God, which can then be applied in the whole field of spirituality. And of course, for Packer, one of the big issues is how you deal with sin, because that was a very important theme for him. And he felt that a lot of um, existing evangelical spiritualities didn't really engage the issue properly. So it's, it's fascinating. And I have to say that the book, um, the book has stood the test of time very well. It spoke to a lot of people at the time. And actually, it still speaks to a lot of people today. And I think what's interesting, too, is um, that book was not meant to be a book. Like it was a collection of essays that he had written that someone suggested that it become a book. Is that right? Well, that's right. I mean, basically, um, you know the way C.S. Lewis wrote um, Screwtape Letters as a series of newspaper articles and then thought, hey, it's a book. <laughs> I mean, with, with Jim, there was no thought of a book. It was um, He was asked to write, um, I think it was five articles a year for a rather small magazine, evangelical magazine. I don't know what its circulation was, but it was very small. And Jim just thought, this is worthwhile. It'll help me think these questions through. So he did. And then at the end of it, he had these articles and he thought, I could string these together and rewrite them. So there's a holistic vision here, which would make a book. And the book came second. It was not the original intention at all. And in effect, he rewrote the whole thing to increase its coherence. 
And actually, it's it's quite remarkable. I think uh, the way it it it's just it just came together. I love how you mentioned also um, how he was focused on sin, and that was an area that he felt he needed to write about. And he certainly was impacted a lot by John Owen and his writings on sin. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how like in your biography how you call out like how much Packer loved seventeenth century writers, the Puritans. Uh, John Bunyan, he loved, uh, obviously, Calvin. Um, I, I know it's a lot of Johns <laughs> and also like the J's, like the J.C. Riles. Like he was very much attached to 17th century uh, writers. And um, I'm curious, like what kept Packer in the 17th century? So like what did he love about that period? It wasn't nostalgia. Uh, today's awful. Let's go back to the safety of the past. It's not that at all. It's much more that this period for Packer seems to have produced an approach to theology, which really was theologically rigorous, but at the same time engaged real questions like, how do I deal with temptation? How do I grow in the Christian life? And I think Jim, uh, he followed James Orr in thinking each age of Christian thought kind of has its own distinct questions that bubble up. And sometimes very good answers are given. And Packer felt that what those answers given in the 17th century by the Puritans were, well, were were so good that people needed to know about them, that actually we'd lost something. And so Packer, in effect, saw himself as someone who was not asking us to go back to the past, but rather was trying to bring the wisdom of the past into the present. And hence, um, you know, he, he tries very hard not to appear as some kind of uh, person who, who's trying to hold us by the hand and say, let's go back. He's saying, no, let's stay right where we are, but let's mm. listen to what they're saying back then, because we can take this and use it in the present. So if you mm. like, it's, it's his realization that there is wisdom in these writers, and he wanted to kind of help people today to discover this and learn from it. Was that influential to you, like the way that he would just read so much of the Puritans was that like did that impact you in your own reading well it did I mean I mean Jim Packer and C.S. Lewis both have a very similar method they would say um we go back to the past because very often books become classics for very good reasons and we need to ask what do people find in them and what can we learn from them and uh, I I have to say that uh, Packer helped me realize that um going back to the past was not some kind of um waste of time or exercise in pure nostalgia. It was actually saying there is wisdom there. Let's go and look for it. And I've done that and it works. That doesn't mean every past writer is good. It just means that there's a big landscape there to explore. And every now and then you will find nuggets of gold that you can bring forward to the present day. So it's it's a great approach. I'm curious about maybe some of your favorite Puritan writers or books that you'd recommend for those who have never encountered a Puritan never picked up one of these books and are now curious, like, oh, wow, Packer really like loved the Puritans. I would love to like get started, but I'm not even sure like where to begin. I think my advice would be not to begin immediately by reading Puritan writers, but perhaps read someone like Packer's Quest for Godliness and let him introduce them and let him sample them with you. And you can get a sense of who these people are, what they're talking about. And one of the things that Packer brings out very clearly is that actually we are individuals and therefore we may find that this writer speaks to us more than that writer. And I don't know 
who my audience will be drawn to, what I can say is that Pecker's quest for godliness will in effect lay out some of these writers and explore them with you. And, and you'll find that, that sounds good. I'm going to look at this one. So use Pecker as your gateway to the Puritan writers. I think that's the best advice I can give. Mm, that's good. Uh, now, like like Calvin very much drew on the church fathers. And I'm curious about um, Packer's thoughts on the church fathers. Did he read the church fathers and kind of his views on, on them? Yes, he did. We, we had many conversations about these. I mean, and Jim very often would say to me, you know, when I, when I was uh, young, I used to think of the church fathers being very well-intentioned, but just simply wrong. They didn't read the Bible enough. They got things wrong. And so as, as he read them in more detail, he began to realize actually that they, they, did, they did engage in the Bible and very often they got things right and we needed to listen to them. So if you like, he's someone who began with suspicions and then discovered riches. So I think that's a very important point to make. But certainly, I mean, he will point to Augustine, he point to Athanasius as writers who wrestled with big questions like the identity of Christ, the nature of grace, and the quality of their wrestlings is such that we can benefit from them today. So he certainly is articulating a theme which is very, very important and very, very characteristic of Packer, which is that, um, you know, in the past, people have done some very good things. We can learn from them. And again, this idea of being enriched by the past, but not trapped by the past. Mm. I think that's a very important uh, approach to bear in mind. Yeah. And it's also interesting, like, like, as you read the Church Fathers, like the debates that went on, like especially in early church history, as, as different doctrines were debated back and forth, uh, Pelagius and Augustine, and the way that different Christians uh, treated each other and wrote about um these different ideas and uh we see this like when packer as he was dealt with different religious ideas that were coming up around like i'm thinking about um the ect document the evangelical catholics together and i remember at the time it was you know it was very much like i think was that in the 90 late 90s when that document yeah. was being circulated was. and there was so much debate on both sides and it was very, very heated. And I was thinking, like, Hacker made a, a bold move by signing that. And um, now, going now, looking back, I'm like actually very, very personally, I'm very, very happy that he signed it. But back then, I was like shocked. I was like, what? How could Packer do that back then? And Packer could just not have. He could have stayed silent on it. He didn't have to sign it because it was kind of a a big move for anybody to like sign on to this document. But I, I felt like. Um, Packer was trying to help take unite some different ideas and bring people together. But I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the ECT document and why it was important for Packer to sign it, because he could have just remained silent and not even have to deal with the controversy and all the drama that went along with that. I think um, we need to remember the political context to this. You know, Bill Clinton has become president and people are beginning to think this 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 might not work out well. You know, it might be that Christianity comes under pressure in the United States. Maybe there's a need for us to begin to build bridges that aren't there at the moment. And bear in mind also that Packer was at Regent College, Vancouver. He was not at one of these big denominational schools in, North, in the United States where, you know, any suggestion you talk to Roman Catholic would have been seen as very, very suspicious. Regent College was interdenominational, and actually people were quite relaxed 
about um, some things. Uh, but even so, Packer took a risk, and he took a risk because he felt it had to be done. Actually, um, in, in doing this, he was not saying, I agree with you on everything, but I agree with you on quite a lot of things. And we can, in effect, talk about the other things, but there are things we can do on the basis of the things we have in common. And I'd suggest to you that actually, you know, Packer, in some ways, is is is, is acting out what he found in C.S. Lewis, this idea of mere Christianity, that there are things that all Christians hold in common which are really important. We need to reaffirm those. And you can see how that plays into what he was doing. But you're right, it was very brave. Um, it did generate controversy. People were very angry with him. Uh, I did, when I was writing to a lot of people, get some letters back um, which were really quite critical of him, you know, just saying, you know, he, he shouldn't have done this. You know, and I have to say that um, uh, more recent correspondence I've had people shows a change of mind, you know, that actually we can now see why he did it. Yeah. I'm also curious about his um, his approach on theistic evolution. That's another area that, again, he could have remained silent on. He could have just, you know not said anything about it, but he also advocated uh, theistic evolution. And I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on that. I think Jim really began to um, advocate theistic evolution. Though, of course, he doesn't actually use that phrase while he was in Great Britain. It just seemed to him this was an obvious way of reading scripture. His knowledge of historical theology indicated this was actually a very respectable position. And of course, he'd read Benjamin Warfield, you know, and, and knew what his position was. So he felt this was this was a defensible and helpful position. When he went to um, North America, he went to Regent College. And again, Regent College was an interdenominational school. It was apart from the American culture wars. And actually, it was not an issue there, as it might have been, for example, at somewhere like, uh, well, you know, you, you can name other theological schools where might be the problem. And that was just the way Jim saw things. But you need to also bear in mind that actually, although Jim became famous in North America, Actually, in many ways, he learned his theology in Britain. And in Britain, this has never been a controversy. I mean, it, it's, it's always been something where we can see various options and people have been free to choose what they think is right. And actually, Jim uh, just felt that A, his conclusion stood, and B, the fact that it wasn't a big deal also stood. And so he felt he could really bring that with him to the North American context. Yeah. What advice do you have for, I feel like it's such a, um, still a heated debate today and Christians divide over this issue. What advice do you have for those that are in conversation with each other who are maybe um, at odds? Um, they have different viewpoints on creation versus evolution. And I guess, how can we have more grace for each other? Well, I think, I think I'm going to say a few things. What One is that, first of all, I do understand why people are so... Um, engaged with this question, why they see it being so important. I think that's very important. I think we also need to say very clearly, there's not a debate about the authority of the Bible. Asserting the authority of the Bible does not answer any of these questions, because the issue is, what's the right interpretation of this? And we find something like theistic evolution being talked about by church fathers. So in effect, you know, this is not a new approach at all. It's in effect already there in tradition. But I think the third thing I would say is this. I could draw you a map of various possibilities for Christians, you know, uh, all of them take the Bible very, very seriously. Um, but all of them 
have weak points. You know, there's no one that's obviously right at every level. You know, you can say this is the best way of interpreting Genesis. Oh, but actually it doesn't do very well on, for example, correlating what we know of science. So you do have to, in effect, make a judgment about which of these is the best. And I'm, I'm prepared to respect those judgments, even though I may disagree with them. What I would say, though, is that actually this is not a matter of salvation in my view. This is a matter of how on earth we try and make sense of um, certain very important themes of scripture. But there are other themes which I think we can bring to bear on this, which set them in the proper context. Yeah, and I think you hit it right there about um, the authority of the Bible. And I think that's sometimes where um, the debates are kind of focused on because people are not, they feel like the other person's not taking the Bible seriously or, take, or taking the Bible um, in an authoritative way. What was, um, and, and certainly Packer did that. Packer took the Bible very, very seriously. It was an authority uh, document for him. What was Packer's views on inerrancy and versus inspiration? Well, Packer clearly thought inspiration was very, very important. The question is how you actually articulate this. And one of Jim's concerns was that the, the word inerrancy was unhelpful. You know, um, for Jim, it meant that, in effect, you were talking about almost like the Bible is a matter of logic. You know, for Jim, the key issue was you can trust this. You know, it is reliable. So he preferred to talk about, for example, the, the trustworthiness of Scripture or words like that and felt that inerrancy was actually quite a negative word. You know, if you think about it, well, he wants to simply say this is something we can trust, we can obey. And therefore, I'd rather use other words to talk about this. And he, he got annoyed, actually, because he felt that he was being forced to use a certain mm. vocabulary, which he did not feel was helpful. In fact, at one point, he said, we've invented a new heresy. It's not justification by works. It's justification by words. You've got to use the right words. But I'm being asked to use a word that I don't think is helpful here. Oh, that's, I've never heard that before. That's actually oh, very yes. interesting. Oh, yes. Wow. You have to use the right phrases. And, and Jim is just saying, look, I, I'm trying to articulate what the significance of the Bible is. If you don't mind, I'm going to use my own vocabulary because I think this expresses it rather better than the words you're asking me to use. How did Packer deal with like the, the tough bits in Scripture? Maybe those passages that um, are discrepancies or those passages that are very complicated. Well, he dealt with them in a number of ways. I think um, because he's a scholar, very often he will say, let's look at the various ways of interpreting these, lay them out, and then explain why he chose the option he did. But you're right, there were passages, particularly those dealing with um, um, the idea of hell, um, a, a sort of eternal punishment, um, where actually evangelicalism is, is going through a, a debate about this. And Jim positioned himself very strongly on what I would say is quite a traditional reading of this. And I think that the conversation is still ongoing. So there are a number of areas where I think Jim would take positions which people would say they can understand, but they think there are other options that need to be considered. So I think, you know, it's a sense in which Jim would be a classic representative of certain viewpoints. But people would say, well, we're so glad he's there, but there are other ways of thinking about this. We need to find some way of making sure they're brought into the discussion as well. It's interesting how Packer, like, on some of the controversial issues where he could have just remained silent and, and not have to deal with the headache and the letters and the criticism, um, 
But there are certainly issues that he wanted to discuss. He was totally okay, as you've been mentioning, with like addressing these issues and sharing different points of view. I mean, how did he feel in the midst of these, the criticism, in the midst of the controversy when he was in these places where he was being picked on? Well, clearly, um, he, he's a human being. So, you know, so this gets to you. I mean, I, I think we have to say that. And I think that um, Packer did see himself as a theologian whose job was to say, I think it looks like this. Show me I'm wrong. You know what I mean? In other words, he, he felt he had a strong responsibility to tell it as he saw it. Um, and in effect, let people debate this. And it's very important for Packer that the, the position that he represented was heard and taken seriously. But of course, controversy is always difficult to deal with. And Jim was not a controversialist. It wasn't his nature. Um, if anything, he was actually quite irenic, particularly in private, I have to say. Um, but nevertheless, he, he recognized that some of the things he was saying would not be universally welcomed. But he felt that they needed to be said, even if it was only to make sure that things were properly discussed in the light of all the possible ways of looking at them. I, did, I just love how uh, yeah, he wasn't afraid to take positions. Like you said, like maybe not wanting controversy. He didn't want to be, obviously, no one wants to be criticized. And he's not looking to uh, get into a fight. But at the same time, he is willing to stand up for what he believes in. And um, in that way, very much like mimics like the the Puritans, like speaking yeah. their minds, giving yeah. their perspectives and not holding back. Um, and certainly we see that with C.S. Lewis as well. I'm not really quite sure about his relationship with C.S. Lewis. But obviously, he respected C.S. Lewis. He loved his books. Um, C.S. Lewis was a spiritual mentor uh, through the writings. But did they interact personally? Did they meet up? No. The, 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 I, I was able to find no um, any interaction between them at all. Um, what I, I did note is that Jim, um, uh, when marking um, the centenary of C.S. Lewis's birth, wrote a very fine essay on Lewis, which sets out very clearly why he thinks Lewis is so important, while at the same time just begins to make some some critical mark, remarks, you know, in effect, just, just saying, that, you know, you, you've got to think about things. But, but nevertheless, Lewis is a very important person, take him very, very seriously. So I think um, there's no evidence of any meeting of the two men. I, I just don't see how that could have happened, actually. But um, nevertheless, it's clear that he takes Lewis with great respect. And actually, in some ways, some ways, you could say he's doing what C.S. Lewis did. I would say, you know, the critical reappropriation of the past, that's very much a C.S. Lewis theme. You find that in Packer as well. Uh, before we close, are there like anything that you couldn't cover in the book for whatever reason? Like it wasn't part of his like the factual history of his life. But like things that you know about him that have stood out to you, like those memories that you think about that are just maybe maybe they're really small. They're, oh, it's a little detail, but it's just like it speaks volumes about who Packer was. Well, the, let me tell you about something which, which really interested me. When back when I were talking about his childhood, as you probably know, he had this accident as a child, which meant he couldn't play sports. So he had to read books and an older relative loved reading Agatha Christie. You know, and, and, and got him to read these books and, and he, he loved them. He became a lifelong addict of crime fiction. 
Oh. You know, and actually, I mean, you know, and, and what's crime fiction all about? It's trying to make sense of a complex pattern of events. And actually, I, as I read Packer, Packer's theology, I can see that's what he's doing. He's in effect trying to make sense of what scripture is saying and make sense of what life is all about. I wonder if this is all about, you know, taking it, see, uh, Agatha Christie, you know, make, trying to make sense, trying to put the clues together to see the big picture. You know, I just wonder if there's something there. And certainly there's a very interesting piece, I think, of Christianity today where Packer talks about his love for crime fiction. And actually, uh, I think that that's a neglected aspect of his persona. It, it really mattered to him. Oh, I love that. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. what, did, um, what did Packer say about your first biography? Because that came out like 1998. Yes, he, he um, said it was difficult for him to read because, you know, it's hard to um, read about yourself. But it was a reliable account of him up to that point. And of course, um, I did not go beyond that point, although then with this shorter book, which tries to, in effect, be like a one stop guide to Packer's life, but more importantly, his thought, I think I'm very concerned to keep Packer's legacy alive. You know, uh, that is completely up to date. You know, you know, it, it talks about his final illness and death, his funeral. But it also says, and here's why we're going to remember him, and here's why we need to remember him, because actually he's left us a very important legacy. As we close, um, his he did he did some videos and some writings around aging, and I'm kind of curious about your kind of your final thoughts on Packer as he was um, as he was going blind and he wasn't able to write anymore, how he dealt with aging, and maybe what that taught you. He um, found aging quite difficult, particularly when the macular degeneration became very bad. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. And Jim was a reader and a writer. So, you know, that was a real problem. But he did really emphasize that being a Christian is about growing old, but growing old with God. I think that was a very important point. And actually, there's one little passage he wrote where he goes back to his days as a schoolboy and he remembers his headmaster and his headmaster um uh, was also getting very old and had no hope at all you know he just waiting to die and what's it all about it's pointless and jim was saying in effect my i do not think that that i'm growing old in the presence of a gracious god who is going to stand by me through my infirmities through my weakness. And actually, I found that very moving. Here is somebody who's facing up to the debilitating aspects of old age and is not losing hope. And certainly, the last time I saw him in Vancouver, um, about uh, 18 months before he died, and we had an afternoon together. It was very, very special. And I think we knew we would never see each other again. Mm. You know? But he was talking about this idea of hope. You know, it's not easy, but I am aging in hope. I think he shows us it can be done. And certainly, I'm not getting younger, so I shall be remembering that myself when the time comes. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this biography, the second biography, and for keeping the mem his memory alive with us and documenting his journey academically, spiritually um, in this book. Um, provides us a roadmap to be thinking about our own spiritual lives and our own relationship with God. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Alistair McGrath about his latest book entitled J.I. Packer, His Life and Thought, which is the beautiful history on a man who has helped shape Christian theology and helped people grow in their relationship with God. 
At the end of our conversation with Dr. McGrath, he shared about Packer's struggles with aging, losing mobility, and eventually losing his eyesight, and yet still finding comfort in God. Next time, we're talking with Luann Huska about her new book entitled Hurting Yet Whole, which explores the ways she has dealt with severe pain, chronic illness, dark nights of the soul, questioning God, and finding deeper faith. It's a conversation you don't want to miss. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll chat more next time.